Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome John Cars, director of Age of Sail from Google Spotlight Stories. Hi everyone, here we are again, squiggling it up from shore to shore. How you doing, Steve? I'm okay, Ben. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm a little sleepy. So this might not be one of those high-energy episodes. It's been a long year, hasn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah. All mellow. This is the mellow episode. We can be all just relaxed and chilled out, and we'll just listen to Ben and Steve talking about animation, <laughs> and everything will be fine. <laughs> it's all fine. Oh, my God. That was creepier than mine. <laughs> Just sit back and relax. Ignore what the no. awful Prime Minister with the f***ing Dwayne Dibley haircut is banging on about. Because everything's fine in animation, lad. Enough of her. If we could talk about how incompetent the Prime Minister is, because then that would be an evergreen podcast. <laughs> we could keep this, we could play this. It doesn't matter if we play it now until... March or however long this show is going to last, we can just keep <laughs> this. We don't have to stick a November, December stamp on this podcast. We can just talk about how crap she is, but let's not. Let's talk about animation instead. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, uh, life is okay. I'm, I'm sort of uh, going back and forth between studio work and doing a bit of teaching. So that kind of uh, I'm, I'm bringing a bit of a sort of teaching vibe to the workplace which everyone i think finds really obnoxious because <laughs> i've been reminded of all the terminologies and um you know the the how one principle of animation relates to another it's like we, we just want to move the title like a little bit to the left ah, no, no 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 overlap <laughs> you want to create suspense with your anticipation of the typography I'll just ease in there with a little squash and stretch and just add some appeal. Mm. It's like, ben, it's it's just... It's a CGI mock-up of a venereal disease pamphlet, Ben. We don't need to... <laughs> but think of the overlapping action! <laughs> coming down from... Uh, well, coming down from Manchester, where we were last week, or the week before, I guess, will be when this podcast comes out... Uh, for the old Manchester Animation Festival, which was good fun. It was flipping exhausting, I'll give you that, like. <laughs> we taught the world to sing, Stephen. We did. We did teach the world. Well, you taught the world how to sing. I taught them how to invest in earplugs. No, no, no. I always suspected. Because I knew at one point I would get you to sing. In some way, on the podcast or at a quiz or whatever. And I, I always knew that out of your mouth would come a voice of an angel. A hell's angel. Yeah, well, yes. You proved us all right. <laughs> and everyone left that quiz room with a song in their hearts and something pretty nifty tucked under their arms and just scratching their heads over the ridiculous questions hallwise because i got one of those facebook on this day things from a few years ago and the prize table from like the first squiggly quiz we did over there pa! oh my goodness what a deadly <laughs> affair this thing was like the last supper table <laughs> Of animation treats and goodies. I don't think anyone could have gotten a bad prize, even though it was pretty, like, well-populated. Even we went home with a clangers slide whistle. Yeah. <laughs> which is pretty top-notch. So, 
Yeah, we were just left with all our sort of joke prizes. So I still have my South Park beefcake cufflinks yeah. from seasons one. The minions wet wipes, Ben. We still got them. No one took them. Oh, I thought Aaron took those. He came by afterwards and he's like, are the wet wipes gone? No, no, he probably just had, he probably just came supplied with them. Oh, right. Mm. (laughs) If he came running up to you going, Ben, where are those wet wipes? I think there might have been something else going on. Right, row. Poor Aaron, uh, his first choice was a DVD of magic light films. (laughs) And uh, he lost it in the pub. (laughs) He put it down and and went home without it. So he had to go back to the pub the next day. Be like, I left uh, my copy of Stickman and other assorted tales. (laughs) Did someone turn it? And apparently they reunited him with it. Well, that's so nice. He had some uh, some viewing material. Hello, excuse me. I'm I'm a man in my mid to late thirties, and I've I've left my children's DVD behind. Is there any any chance that it is here? Oh, let me just check in the back there. Let me just uh, stick man. Did you say we've got these? We've got the tweenies. We've got uh, Teletubbies. We've got Wallace and Gromit. We got. Sorry, mate. Fresh out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it was good. It was good fun. Um, it, it, how did the screening go? Really nicely. It was um, the usual kind of affair of, I think, mostly students who hadn't really brought enough cash with them. <laughs> I did hear a, a few people, when we were setting up, I knew that there were a couple of tickets left. But then afterwards, I heard a few people got turned away. And I'm not sure if there was a miscommunication or if it actually just sort of filled up. But uh, yeah, nice little cluster of people who uh, seem to dig the films. One of the films, and I won't throw the filmmaker under the bus by uh, specifying who it was. I I say this more of a critique of my own curational flair. (laughs) One of the films I think maybe was a little misjudged. I think it's great. And I think maybe um, alongside other more similarly um, inclined films, films with more of that kind of serious tone, it would have fit in a little better. My sort of logic, and it seemed to make sense at the time, was that I wanted it to be kind of rounded and balanced. And usually when I put them together, you know, there are some serious films and then there are some comedy films. And I think for the most part, even the serious films or the kind of more artsy films had a kind of strong undercurrent of wit to them. And then there was only one that actually, at the end of the day, just kind of had none of that. It was just kind of playing super straight, like, you know. And it was very pretty. I will stand by that. It was a lovely film to look at. But I have a feeling that maybe um, it sort of stamped a little bit on the the fire of revelry that otherwise (laughs) would have uh, burned a little longer. But what I found was also great was to pepper up a screening. I did this last year as well. I like to throw in a few of uh, Yost's films. You know who uh, does Cartoon Box? Oh, yeah. Fantastic work. They're all like 30 seconds long each. He does one a week for like over a year now. He's made, I think it's nearly two years now because he's made over 100. Hmm. And I just saw that they got like a million subscribers on YouTube. So well done, Yost. And they're pretty funny. Sometimes they're very bizarre and obscure. Like the punchlines are really like, what? Okay. But always quite entertaining. It's a great, like, uh, if you haven't checked out Cartoon Box by uh, Frame Order, they're a great sort of example of what uh, dogged persistence in the uh, world of getting your name out there as an online animator in the current, like, climate of uh, YouTube and its godless algorithms. 
this guy really kind of has put a lot of elbow grease into it. And they're short and cheap and cheerful, but they're always funny and they have all the tenets of good filmmaking. So it's always a pleasure to put a few of those in a screening because they always get a good laugh and wake people up a bit. That's good. I remember the the first screening I saw them in was a, a kind of a, a similarish affair. It was the uh, it was the one that Bill Plimpton and uh, Nancy Phelps used to put on at Annecy, the Annecy Plus screening, and it was things you shouldn't mix up. Oh yeah, do you remember that one? And that really kind of uh, I remember seeing it for the first time and just howling with laughter because it's it it's it's not quite obvious humour. It is, but it is completely obvious once you've seen it. If you know what I mean, in terms of the punchline. Yeah, it's that kind of really sharp, but at the same time almost dad jokey kind of wit. Yeah, it's just fantastic. There's a kind of darkness to them that's just sort of like playful. It's kind of like itchy and scratchy level of darkness, where it's it can be pretty extreme, but you you can't really react badly to it. Yeah, because it's always quite silly and cartoony. Uh, one of my favorites of the longer films he did was called How Dave and Emma Got Pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that one just goes in such a f- bizarre direction. <laughs> and it's it's absolutely like my cup of tea. Um, and of course, Panic, um, which was huge a couple of years ago and is still, I think, doing very well online. I, I do remember finding Panic. It was, it was during, uh, we were watching the films for the festival when we were selecting. And... Um, the other two people uh, who were selecting films with me stopped and came into the room that I was in because I was howling with <laughs> laughter. And they would obviously we spend a whole day watching films and we make an effort to watch every single film, Manchester Animation Festival and all that kind of stuff. And when you just when it just turns up on screen and just makes you laugh so much, um, it's it's just a gift, isn't it? It's just fantastic. Yeah, especially when yeah, yeah, like you say, you have to look at hundreds of films. Mm. You know, anything that brings up your spirits a yeah. bit. Because I thought every ounce of humour had been sapped out of me at that point. Because <laughs> I've mm. been watching all these quite dour films. You know, quite dour if that's the right word. You know, quite sad films. Quite you know, heartbreaking, long, drawn out films about sorrow, about sadness. And then here's a comedy. <laughs> it's just, and it just, and, and I, I didn't think, I, I didn't think it was an ounce of humour left in my body. And there it was, reservoirs of the stuff. I was just absolutely overjoyed by it. It's such a great film. So those films went down well. And um, and there were a couple of films from the uh, Lutzen School of Art, mm. Ooze and uh, Living Like Hater. Ooze, we um, put up an interview with the director, well, sort of. We put up an interview with him at Click mm. that um, Anna Reisbout did. And uh, I've got an interview with The Living Lake Hatter, uh, one of the directors coming up soon, because that's going to be screening in London. Oh, an RCA film that um, I've seen a couple of times over the last year or so that is very not super RCA-y, um, called Haley and Joanna. It's like an animated uh, animated podcast segment. Um, it's, it's a great sort of interpretation i guess of the audio mm. like visually it's a lot of fun and um uh, and that uh, film from leeds uh, thirsty by oscar Barani, yeah. um which i like a lot that sort of uh, i'd seen that at cardiff I, I never taught him that's why it's a good film oh there you go yeah. <laughs> you're he, too he, hard on yourself he, he was in his third year and i was busy ruining the second years there you go yeah <laughs> speaking of student films 
and students and all that studenty stuff. Did you see my little Twitter spat that got mentioned a couple of times at the festival? Was this about the anime thing? Yeah, about anime. Yeah, remind me again what the the hullabaloo was. The hullabaloo uh, was that uh, Ringling College of Art and Design uh, in Florida, I think that is, uh, sent out a message to the students basically saying that, well, effectively saying that if they engaged in anime, they wouldn't be marked favourably, which was obviously caused a bit of uh, a bit of contention, really. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if somebody wants to do anime, then, yeah, great, do anime. That's it, It's just as relevant as any other form of animation. Um, but there's a lot of... There's a lot of backlash with anime, isn't there? There's a lot of students who really, really love it. And then there's lecturers that I suppose don't quite understand it as well as they should. Mm. But I, I don't really think it's the really the job of a lecturer to uh, be an expert on anime. My my opinion is that, you know, if you want to do anime for your university work, then be the expert in anime. Really just, you know, be amazing at it and tell me every little thing about anime and really get stuck into it. And the problem that some universities find or some students find themselves in is that they they would turn up to university and they're drawing the same image on day on the last day of university as they're drawing on day one. So there's been no development or progression and they're still drawing Sailor Moon yeah. <laughs> three years yeah. later, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone who's into anime does that. I'm just saying that it's, you know, inexperienced. I've maybe noted one or two students that have fallen into that category. However, for every one or two of them, there's always somebody who's just, you know, absolutely dedicated to the craft. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Um, I think it's a fair point, though, that the issue isn't the culture of animation that's being addressed. It is the, the lack of development, the lack of fundamental learning. And I think that the same would apply to someone who comes in and has taught themselves any surface level to draw a certain Disney princess over and over again, or Mickey Mouse, or The Simpsons, or Rick and Morty, or you know, and they never really are able to deviate from that and actually learn what actually goes into a drawing that you don't necessarily take in. Yeah, I mean that was a big hurdle for me when I because I didn't do animation at BA level. I I only really learned to draw in any technical sense, when I was kind of in my early 20s. Because up till then, I had been drawing in the sense of, like, you know, you draw the surface of a character. You draw the uh, this uh, the eye connects to the nose, connects to the blah, blah, blah. You're not thinking of the anatomy. Um, you're not thinking of the layout and the spatial, you know, awareness, composition, things that make a drawing pleasing to a viewer, things that make layout make sense. Um, and then, of course, when it comes to animation and movement, there are all sorts of other things that you need to consider, things that, you know, the audience won't even consciously acknowledge again. So if you don't learn that stuff, I mean, it's so, the thing is, for people who do know that stuff, it's so obvious when someone never bothered to learn that. Yes. But the person who never bothered to learn it can't tell the difference. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's it's a hard thing to convince someone of, like, no, actually... If, like it's like bad graphic design or bad sound design or anything that kind of disregards not the rules but the 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 fundamentals i guess of any profession 
Like the prick who just rewired my boiler. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then I think artistry, you know, has a, there are certain things, you know, tools of the trade, I think, that will help you more than anything. Mm. So, yeah, I think anime kind of gets a bit of flack because it is probably a more frequent victim of that mindset. The thing about anime as well, I mean, all forms of animation are like this to an extent, but anime invites a certain fandom that is so, has such a thirst for escapism. Of course, everyone has that thirst, but there's something about the, the fervor of an anime fandom that is, is quite exceptional. And I think that because there's a, maybe an achievability to the artistry that is less sort of obvious to you know people when it's other forms of animation. You can make something look like an imitation of an anime style, whether or not you've kind of embraced you know the rules of anime or whatever. You can achieve something that's kind of comparable in your mind, maybe a little easier, and you can share it on Twitter, and the sort of little echo chamber of other anime fans will give you a great deal of validation. My one of my favorite elements of the Twitterverse is the person who clearly spent 16 hours on a drawing, putting up the drawing and then saying, oh my God, I should just give up drawing. I'm so bad. I mean, this was, and then yeah. the, the hundreds of comments, mostly from people of the opposite gender going, no, <laughs> don't say that. You're amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Are you okay, hun? One of my favorite catchphrases <laughs> of the Twitter world. DM me if you need to chat. Yeah. Or the just a warm up sketch. And then some people I think are perfectly well aware of, you know, that that's the response they're going to get. And they know what it really means and they just kind of enjoy it. But, you know, to each their own. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, you know, there are all sorts of branchings off from the anime like core of discussion that we could go down. But I know that certainly some of the students I have are pretty into anime and I think it's, you see sometimes it's reflected in what they're doing and what they're doing at the moment isn't really meant to be reflective of anything. It's just make the flower sack drop. Yeah. And so if it's a flower sack with like a Dragon Ball Z face, <laughs> they haven't really grasped the point of the exercise. That actually was uh, last year. Or when, or when it's like, you know, give, give it personality. I put sparkles around it so you can tell it's happy. <laughs> well, no, no, that's, that's, that's not what we mean by personality. That's, that's sparkles. I, I do think it's a pretty arrogant attitude that, um, what do you say, it was Ringling? Yeah, yeah. They, right. they, they, uh, they put this thing, yeah. It was Ringling that put this thing out saying, uh, yeah, annoyed quite a few people. But one of the people that... They're annoyed uh, with somebody on Twitter who put, anime is good, your teachers aren't. Anime is referenced in every artistic industry. Your teacher likely hasn't been relevant in any industry for years. That smarted a bit. (laughs) 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 I'll be honest, I looked at that and thought, "Eh, that's not true, is it? Um, Well, she's talking about the original teacher, not you. Right. Yeah, this is okay. this is. But I thought, you know. So I'm you gonna, mean because teachers in general? Yeah, I'm gonna. Okay, I'm, I'm I with thought, you. you know, I'm gonna have to. This is the internet. It's a forum <laughs> for mature discussion. I'm t- I'm gonna get involved here. Time to load up some gifts. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, and 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 so I put teacher here. Anime is good, but drawing the same anime for every assignment isn't. 
Art school is your opportunity to develop and grow. And if you're going to do anime, become the expert in anime and really go for it. Don't draw the same pictures on the last day as you did on day one, which is what I said earlier on, really. And then, which is all great, and, you know, I, I did all right for that. I got some some likes, which is the, the, uh, the objective on the game, which is known as Twitter. And then I met a friend, Ben. Okay. <laughs> I met a, a, a friend who said, I would take these types of comments seriously if y'all actually knew either pop, classic, or modern that are not from the Western School of Art, but y'all keep pushing us with the same four white, transphobic, Islamophobic ladies, lol. I bring up Ruth and you're all like, whomst? One more class about Nina Paley, Abramovic, or Euclides, uh, and I will pray for somebody to kill me with a copy of my Naruto DVD. Worst and most hypocritical of everything is that they will refuse classic art because realism is too hard. The fuck? Like, stop breaking kids. I mean... Well, I'm glad that person <laughs> spoke out. That's, uh... So, so I... What? <laughs> <laughs> so I put... It's quite a sweeping generalisation you've made there. Sounds like you're not enjoying the higher education course that you signed up for. <laughs> uh... To which I got the measured response. Uh, do white men have any other excuse than sweeping generalisation you made there? Lol, and it's not just me. Ask any other person. That, that's why there's discourse. And maybe if I'm paying 60,000 or 60k, maybe, yeah, ask for teachers to be more educated in their fields is not too much to ask TBH. And, and then I said... <laughs> you can't purchase an education or expect your tutors to be knowledgeable on every area, on an ever-expanding art form. I like how I'm reading mine out in a sort of measured way. Uh, this is just to keep the story fun. I think uh, I've, I've found this exchange. <laughs> Have you? Oh, good. Well, I'll read me then. <laughs> it's up to you uh, to put the effort in and develop an, an, an expertise in your chosen area. Your tutors should encourage that and reward you for showing the development. Okay. To which uh, Meow Moiselle rebuts, I can't imagine going to any part of the world and having teachers say to my face, pay me for being your ignorant 60k nanny. I'm shook. Mexican free educators are the most cultured people on earth. Uh, okay. I, they know comics from around the world, painters, conceptual artists, etc. It's hella sad seeing teachers that feel entitled to be ignorant and imperialist, and still in expect a paycheck. Yikes. You know what's really, like, <laughs> disheartening about reading this exchange is it reminds me of when I was that age and had values <laughs> and used to use words like imperialist. <laughs> I, I've said a few things here, and all of a sudden we've got transphobic, Islamophobic. <laughs> I, I've been called white, which is only three quarters true. Uh, <laughs> oh, she, she doesn't fuck around here. You yeah. are a Ayuk. I think she <laughs> means jerk. And I feel sorry for your students who honestly deserve much better. I just yeah. want to point out, you've been ridiculously civil. <laughs> <laughs> and actually quite helpful. Like, yeah. that is the wonderful thing about, like, these... Because uh, the more helpful and, like, factual you are, the more somehow you're a piece of shit. 
I do I do like how she says that, you know, I'm setting back academia a hundred years, which is I mean, come on. That's a quite an achievement. I'm quite proud of that. That that, that my tweet has set back academia by a hundred years. Well, I think that people like um this young I'm going to assume lady from the handle having moiselle in it. I'm glad we have people like this to kind of show us what's what. Because <laughs> the world is changing, Stephen. And uh, we need to kind of keep up to speed with... I mean, it's not about us actually improving as people. I've come to realize it's about learning the lexicon and how to say the right phrases to um, get along while actually still being a piece of shit. That seems to be how people survive in the world at the moment. Pat Oswalt did a really great bit on this a few years ago about like how you can be the worst kind of person in the world, but as long as you're using the right phrases, then social media will haul you up on their shoulders. But if you happen to have kind of a noble soul and actually want to improve the world, but you use a sweeping term that has become a little outdated... You're basically Hitler. <laughs> like, I am coming hat in hand, or, you know, with my hand extended saying, educate me on a subject. I'm willing to learn. I'm interested. Mm. If you don't know already, go f*** yourself. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you kind of, basically everyone has to kind of keep their mouth shut until they've learned everything, by which point all the terms have changed. Mm. And, you know, I mean, when I, you know, 10 years ago, the, the big thing was don't hoist your labels on me. Now it's, here's an encyclopedic list of all the labels you need to learn. <laughs> and make sure you label me with the right ones regularly and in every exchange. Yeah. I mean, I got quite a few labels chucked at me there, which was quite interesting. <laughs> you know, which is, I, I think there's a... There's an overarching problem here, which is a problem with, you know, when, when the likes of Twitter, and I just saw this as me just sort of, you know, typing while on the toilet. <laughs> Somebody, that's all Twitter is. You know, it's, not, it's, it's nothing, you know, grand or exciting or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, if we could see a pie chart of people who Twitter, the things that, you know, the, the profound things that people that type on Twitter, nine times out of ten, they've either been done on Hootsuite on a Monday afternoon or they've been done on the toilet. Let's be honest with each other. On the bus or something like that. Or doing your toilet on the bus. You know, mix them both together. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's incredibly interesting that, you know, people can't be wrong nowadays. And I'm quite happy to be wrong. And I'm, I'm quite happy to, to be proven wrong. And so I kind of... It, I, I did have a little bit of fun with with that particular individual who was getting back in touch with me and stuff. But I, I, deep down inside, I wanted to learn something. I wanted to sort of figure it out. You know, I wanted to figure out what the point was of this person's rage. And, and you know, I wasn't there to kind of preach anything to this person, as you, as you can see by my responses. You know, there's a little bit of that kind of, you know, you know, I do feel sorry for him in the end. But um, it's, it's interesting now. No one can be wrong. Yeah. Anymore. You, I think what was happening is you were just in the crosshairs of rage that would have been directed anywhere. What kind of helped out was that you had a point of view that rather optimistically conflicted with theirs. That made it very easy to villainize you. Mm. I think very good intentions can be quite easily villainized in this current climate. And a couple of uh, tales come to mind. One... Um, goes back to the summer uh, during Annecy 
Annecy, of course, had a big uh, women in animation presence. Uh, they've been very kind of keen on, I think, keeping that going, whether or not it's really sort of properly taken off. They've been very keen on getting a sort of level of interest whipped up for that. Mm-hmm. And I think um, women in animation are doing very good work. And the sort of associated studios like Stateside that have kind of hopped on and said, whatever we can do, you know, we want you to know. I know. I th- and I think that's great because it means that the patriarchy is listening. Mm-hmm. And that actually not all of us are Harvey Weinstein's. So the women who put together animation, uh, women in animation, had a day of panels at Annecy, and the first one they put together was a panel of men, the studio heads, and it was a conversation, I guess, about what we can do better. And I, I, I dipped in and out of it, and it was actually sort of a mix of like what we can do better and what we're already doing that's pretty damn great. Like, you got to kind of pat yourself on the back a little, because, you know, I, I get that. But the the anger and rage, it was Facebook live-streamed. And if you go into the comments and that, like, the people who were watching this going, oh, so it's a women in animation day, and the first fucking thing I see is five woke bros. <laughs> the attitude is like, we want change. We want to affect change. We don't want these guys to help us do it Mm. well which guys are gonna do it we don't want any guys to help us do it okay then i Mm. do you want us to just step aside fuck you step aside complacency (laughs) it was one of those things where i'm like hmm maybe i should help by wading in to this conversation and uh explaining to them (laughs) And they're like, hmm. I can just see you just <laughs> popping up slowly from behind the couch with a pipe in your hands. <laughs> just like puffing away on this pipe. Going, oh, now, ladies, <laughs> allow me to interject. <laughs> Firstly, let's all have a nice cup of tea. You're all getting a bit hysterical. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Who's making the tea? <laughs> It's it. I'm 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 really sorry. That's 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 awful. That joke, but it's that's not a statement on an entire bunch of people, is it? It's a statement on the individuals that are picking apart and don't quite know what they want, but they know that they want a a response to what they're saying. Absolutely. And yeah. it's some some of it's some of it's quite easy. Now we we've had this a couple of times with Manchester Animation Festival. We get in touch with the companies and say, "Can you send somebody?" And nine times out of ten, they send men, you know, and it's and it's quite and you, you don't quite want to turn around and say, have you got a woman? Because the person that they're sending wants to do it, and the company wants that person to do it. So obviously, there there are infrastructure, maybe uh, unconscious bias issues within that company, and that's something that the work of Animated Women UK are doing an incredible job of is is addressing. Um, and women in animation uh, uh, addressing the the situation of unconscious bias, you know, uh, and, and and that's a, a tremendous uh, issue, I think that's 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 happening. But when somebody goes on Twitter or Facebook and says, huh, "Look at that, a bloke," then they, I, I, it's yes, it's an it's a it's an attack and it's pointing something out which is perfectly reasonable to point out, but. The work is being done, and you know, 
that panel that you discussed there, it was about, you know, getting us all to realise that, you know, the work is being done, but the work needs a lot more work. It needs to be, you know, it needs to be 50-50. You know, it needs to be uh, completely fair and, and, and even across the board. You know, it, it's uh, animation, as we know. I mean, look at, look at the list of guests we've had on this podcast. You know, we primarily uh, interview directors and, you know, it's always blokes. Interestingly, I found that when we did the sex podcast... Then the ratio completely went the other way. Mm. As far as like directors who are making very compelling films about love and sex and intimacy, it, it's mostly women who are kind of leading the charge in that regard. Mm-hmm. That is a very sort of niche area when it comes to that kind of yeah general industry, that entertainment industry, TV, etc. It it sucks. Like you hear people like the poor pricks who do try and make Rick and Morty fun for everyone and then they have this like contingent of their fan base that pisses in their pants because they hire women on their writing staff you've ruined the show shows shows fine yeah show one could argue goes from strength to strength yes and these kind of little like poisonous bubbles of anger that people have on principle the idea that you know you can't let girls play we're not five years old. I've never sort of had a situation in my life where the addition of women creatively or socially or whatever wasn't an improvement. Yes. But yeah. there are some people, I guess, and I guess that maybe there's some kind of like connection to men and power and the, the pursuit of power and where they figure women factor into all that, where they have to kind of keep women at bay to an extent. And it's a very cavemanish way of thinking, you know. And I don't even say that every woman that I meet in that context I'm going to be best pals with or even, like, fond acquaintances with. But you can work alongside people and respect them and appreciate what they bring to the table. So, it's a It's a long uh, journey ahead. And um, and this podcast has just accomplished fifty percent of that uh, journey. This conversation we've had has really contributed, hasn't it, Ben? <laughs> I consider myself the wokiest woke of them all. <laughs> King woke. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I make no claims for wokeness, but I do think that so far, I, I think by virtue of having not actively been a piece of shit to people. I've helped in that way. We talked quite a bit about how we can do better earlier in the year when some shit hit the fan in particular. Mm. You know, you just keep your eyes open and your ears open. And the other thing I was going to actually bring up alongside the Annecy thing, this is something that sort of happened directly to me. And it was a few months ago, and I kind of have been going back and forth in my head about what it was about, what, why it happened and uh, why it happened the way it did. But as, of course, anyone listening to this knows, a big part of what I do when it comes to like animation and networking and things like that is there's a, a part of me that's always kind of scouting for new filmmakers and new work. That's how we get things like the squiggly screening at Manchester, various other fringe screenings, capacities in which I'm a consultant for or pre-selecting or whatever, you know. Just wanting content for the site or for the podcast. A lot of people get that. I think most people get that. That's why, you know, they'll always uh, make time for us unless, you know, they're famous and they have people that kind of uh, run interference. 
I had a very uh, positive conversation last night with a recent graduate who I think has a very promising career ahead of her, and I look forward to sharing that interview with everyone. And there's no expectation, really, on either end for it to propel Squiggly up the ranks in blogdom (laughs) and propel her career up the ranks in animation. It's sharing. It's a mutual respect. Yeah. So I was at a student showcase back in the summer, and it was it was aggressively poor, which is always a disappointment. Usually you go to a student showcase, there's at least a fifth of them that are quite strong, and then a fifth of them that are quite bad, and then everything else kind of falls in between, but usually there's general promise across the board. This particular year's output was just generally very bad, but there were two films that were really good. One of them, unfortunately, had awful music, and I think that will kill it at festivals. I haven't really seen it at festivals or doing the rounds in general, and I think it's because of the music. And I never really met the person who directed it. If I had done, I would have tread cautiously, but I probably would have tried to maybe bring that up, Um, you know, like maybe take another stab at the music, find someone else to do it, because it's a mostly, there's no dialogue, so the music really drives it. So if the music sucks, kills the film. You know, there was a student film actually from my old university, the woman uh, in the year below me doing the MA, and she had a great film that ended up doing well, but her sound mix was absolute garbage. And she felt bad about having me come and redo the sound. I mean, she was glad I did it. I was glad to do it. It was nice to have my name on what was a very cool film. But she always felt, I think, like she didn't want to upset the original guy. So, like, she had to be very kind of, like, poetic with who was credited with what. Mm. And so it may be that whoever did the music for this director's film is someone that she's close to, and maybe she doesn't want to kind of broach that. Uh, You never really know. With student films, people tend to be pretty tight-knit. The other film that was good, Laura had flagged up for me because she thought it might be worth keeping an eye on it for intimate animation. And it wasn't, like, particularly sex and love themed, but it had enough of the kind of ribaldry. Would have maybe made it appropriate. And it was good. It was well made. So I don't have an awful lot to stick around for after the um, uh, the main screening. I say hello to some people, and then I mentioned, by the way, do you know if um, the person who directed this film is here? The person I'm talking to points her out. So I go over as I'm sort of on my way out. I stop by where she is. She's on her own. I say, oh, hi. I just wanted to introduce myself and say I think you did a really good job with the film. And her response to that was, right. Oh, dear. And I'm like, I, I don't know what, where to go from here, actually. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know what I was expecting. Because mm. it's kind of, it's a pretty douchey thing to like be the guy who's like, hey, I thought your film was good and expect this kind of like, oh, thank you, Mr. Man. <laughs> like, I've never had that really in me. Like one time I met uh, Lionel Shriver, the uh, the author, and I, I told her I liked her book, and she kind of gave me this, all right. <laughs> and that was sort of, you know, that was, an, uh, I kind of walked away like, oh, well, she didn't seem to care that I liked her book, but, you know, I'm one of a hundred people who told her that this day, so, you know, hmm. you kind of got it. <laughs> but this was actually kind of hostile, and, you know, I wasn't going to explicitly say, but I was also had this sort of open mind for maybe having this person on a podcast or putting it in a screening or whatever. And if she had any intuition that that was on my mind at all, 
her mission was to completely blow it out of the water. You know, and I, I, I sort of get that. You never know who's just a guy who looks like me, who might very well be lascivious or want to hit on you or have an ulterior motive versus a guy who looks like me, who is me, who doesn't have the f***ing energy for that anymore. I left that behind in my 20s before finally someone made an honest man out of me. But the ladies of animation have nothing to fear. <laughs> I'm only talking to you because I have a f***ing website. Yeah. We got stuff to put on the website, do we not? We've no time for shenanigans. As an impartial uh, listener of that story, would you have done anything kind of differently? Would you have like tried to press this person more to get bring them around? I've, or I've I've never really had that. You know, I know together we've encountered our fair share of um, persons who have tried to influence the site from a kind of you know a more bolshy area. You know, mm. um, you know the kind of people I'm talking about. Troublemakers. Troubles <laughs> are brewing. Here they come with a big big bag of trouble. Um, but it's, it, it, yeah, generally, I, I'm usually all right. I've, never, I've, I've yet to meet people who are a bit like that. I mean, we, for the festival with encountered people who send, you know, obviously we send rejection letters to, to people, not letters, emails uh, to people. And in the first couple of years, we, we couldn't send those uh, emails because we simply didn't have the resources. It was literally me and Jen, you know, watching a thousand films and then, having to email the people who we decided to select for competition and then we didn't have we couldn't email you know the remaining 900 people because we'd not got the time we didn't want to send a you know it's difficult um but yeah we've we've had a few you know we've had the old snotty reply and you know it's not endearing (laughs) i would love more than anything to like get a bunch of festival like uh directors together and just get a bunch of those letters together and make a book out of them. Ooh, I've got some. <laughs> oh, man, it, that would just be so satisfying to read as angry filmmakers. <laughs> I don't know why that just sort of... There's something about people being really indignant that makes for very entertaining <laughs> reading. Mm. But, but and, and the thing is, the people send, who send the letters, and yes, yes, I remember then your names because I've got them written down here. <laughs> no, but the people who write... The people who write the letters or, or, or a bit, you know, the, the emails are a bit snotty or whatever. You know, if they send through another film, I'm not going to just put it at the bottom of the pile. I'm going to watch it again. You know, you've, it doesn't it doesn't really matter that you've... We all react differently to different things. That's what makes us human. You know, it doesn't it doesn't quite matter that you've that you've got really mad about this. This is a big deal for you. You know, you you had your hopes pinned on you know, being on a website or being in an animation festival and you were left disappointed. So you had to vent that. And it's just that you made a poor choice in how to vent that. You know, sending me an email saying that I'm not prepared for your genius yet or that I've not watched your film. Maybe, yeah, (laughs) you're not, you're barking up the wrong tree there. But, you know, send us another film, you know. I remember there used to be a um, a video uh, of like submission regulations. I think Ottawa did it. And it was it was pretty old because it was talking about like submitting your film on VHS, um, and there was a point toward the end of the video. It was like a little stop motion animation thing of like a, a, I think it was an animated tape or something with like a face, and it's like, and please don't send us emails when we reject your film telling us what uncultured philistines we are. We know already. <laughs> We've been told plenty of times before. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's uh, that's got Chris Robinson written all over it, hasn't it? Yeah, it could very well have been him. 
I like to think that, I mean, it's my favorite phrase in the world, separate the art from the artist. <laughs> but yeah, that when that director who I had the sort of frosty meeting with, uh, her film did come, you know, across, you know, my line of vision when I was doing pre-selection for something a little while later. And I still pre-selected it. it would, you know, the film didn't get bad because she was a bit mean, <laughs> you know. And it, it could very well be that, like, her version of that story, if it even would ever be considered consequential enough to be told, is, oh, yeah, I met some guy who runs a, a blog. It was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> That's everyone's wa- story about you, Ben. <laughs> he wanted to talk to me about my film. It was just so inappropriate. Uh, screening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's indicative of the uh, the changing tide and uh, whether or not things will kind of change back again. We shall see. Not as queer as folk. Yes. In the meantime, we're ushering in a new era of filmmaking talent. Uh, I believe that this beacon of hope that showed up earlier this year, something that we very rarely hear in the, the UK, uh, animation funding. Whoa, those what, two words don't go together. What, what, what did I know what they mean on their own, but... I, <laughs> uh, there was a little bit that was released. Not a whole lot in terms of what you need to make an animated film, but it was more than literal pennies. I think the grants were between two and ten grand. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine most of them probably lean toward the former, mm. but I might be wrong. Uh, but it's from the BFI. I I appreciate that things are happening. One shouldn't bite the hand that feeds. These films are going to be available to view on the BFI player from December 3rd. That's uh, on the old website there. Is this something you've been following at all, like any of these films? or I've, I've kept my eye on it, and uh, I, I, I've obviously... It's a whole list of brand new names to, to get to know, really, isn't it? Well, brand new, it depends who's... Who's complaining about them? Really, I know a few people have uh, had a little bit of a a whinge because they've they the people who have received the funding are uh, graduates, uh, you know, of ex- rather expensive universities or whatever. You know, um, right. I've not followed it that far, you know, to to get upset about it. But all I know is that you know, animations, you know, thirteen brand new short animations. Uh, that's that's quite a wealth of animation to come out of the UK. And when it comes to the award season, uh, for the last 20 years, is it fair to say that all we've done is rely on our students? And yet here we are with, with this you know, brand new talent coming from uh, you know, far and wide who are uh, uh, now have presented 13 brand new films. Whether or not they'll get into awards, whether or not they'll get into festivals is yet to be seen. But it's great to see that it's being funded. It's great to see that uh, British animation is being looked after, finally. And yes, you know, £2,000 and or £10,000 even isn't an awful lot of money considering that you're making these, you know, you look at the credits at the end of a film, even a short film, um, and let's take the NFTS films, for example, and imagine that every single one of those people needs a wage, and ima- then imagine you've only got £2,000. And then imagine yeah. again how long it takes to make an animated film. It's not a lot of money, but still it's enough to get somebody going, to grease the wheels, you know. So it's it's exciting, you know. There's some... I keep saying you know. You do know, don't you, Ben? I do now. <laughs> um, there's plenty of interesting films 
coming out by the looks of things. And, you know, the BFI are very much sort of on top of um, uh, what goes on uh, in the world of animation. We talked, I think, when it launched about uh, Animated Britain, hmm. which um, is this fantastic archive that I believe is probably, it's probably going to stay up, right? Like, in perpetuity? Hope so. Yeah. So the, yeah. It'd be a bit sad if they took it away. That's already online on the BFI uh, website. Something to get your, uh, get your engine running in the world of British animation. And if you need a little bit more by way of uh, enthusiasm on that subject, there is indeed a documentary coming out. Uh, I believe it uh, had a preview screening last week, and it's going to be broadcast on BBC4 on December 2nd. A uh, new animation documentary. It's been a while, mm. certainly within the UK. Um, I can't remember, like, chronologically what the last good animation documentary was that wasn't, like, a featurette on a DVD. <laughs> I had a few, I remember, like, back in the day, they used to come out sort of semi-regularly. There was this show called Dope Sheet, which was not the best, but it had some fun segments in it. Then there will be these great like one-off documentaries. Animation Nation, the uh, the one that was uh, written by Paul Wells, that was a good one. Good, there was three of those, I think. They're about an hour each. Mm. And he was involved in another one that was about like adult animation uh, called mm. Cartoons Kick Ass, which I put on a Vimeo channel that uh, I had set up entirely just to put up this documentary. So that might still be on Vimeo somewhere. Uh, unless Channel 4 took it down. Um, and that will be probably in parts. I know Paul Wells was in it. It's, it. it's an interesting snapshot of what adult animation was considered to be in the year 2000. Because strap in, kids. You thought the show was insane, but wait till you see the South Park movie. <laughs> like, that's kind of like the... <laughs> uh, I think it's even before, like, Family Guy and stuff like that, so... Oh, wow. It probably seems quite quaint, but it has, you know, it has a pretty good history of, like, the stuff up to, um, or stuff that would be, I think, quite well known to a lot of squiggly listeners, but to the general public, um, you know, things like, um, what was that famous stag film? Um, the Eagle Man stag. What's it called? Uh, we talked about it on Intimate Animation not that long ago. It had, like, multiple, uh, titles. Oh, this is a f***ing, uh, uh, what do they call it? The Mandela Effect thing happening now. Oh, I know this exists. What year was it released? Uh, like 20s, I think. 1920s? Film about a deer? No, no, a stag film is in, like, a, a sex film, a saucy film. Oh, right, okay. Ah, oh, oh, here yeah. it is. Ever Ready Heart On. From 1928. Oh, right. This was a, uh... Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I just had to go through in my head all, all the vintage animation <laughs> stuff that I've ever seen before, Ben, and it just it's down there at the bottom of the list. Why, why, oh, yeah, so that was just one of the things, <laughs> things in the fucking documentary. A journey worth taking. Yes. <laughs> but there's this new documentary now that's, uh, that's on its way, The Secrets of British Animation. I don't actually know if it is going to be about, like, secrets so much as quite easily researchable knowledge about the history of British animation. Mm-hmm. Not to be a, a glib cynic, but we met with the people who put the documentary together, and I think it's safe to say that they uh, put some heart and soul into it. Oh, yes. I mean, one of the reasons they reached out to us was, I think, part of 
you know, not wanting to leave certain stones unturned as far as what's happening, maybe sort of more recently in British animation. They had a pretty good handle on up to, I think, the mid-90s. And I think we kind of respectively, you met with the producer and I met with the director, and we kind of, like, simultaneously kind of pointed them in some directions of some of the more modern-day stuff that's been going on. Yeah. But from what I hear, they've they've covered all the main bases. They have the greats, you know. Uh, I know that Joanna Quinn features very prominently in it. I mean, to be honest, if you're going to do a documentary about British animation and it was all Joanna Quinn, I'd feel pretty satisfied. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I'll do. But of course, you know, there's um, there's other people, I guess. Hallison Batchelor, George Dunning, Bob Godfrey, etc. Those guys. You know? mm. It's been sort of nice, I guess, because the, the whole thing with Animate Teen and various other things that have been going on, uh, the anniversary of Yellow Submarine, things like that. It's been a nice year to kind of feel prideful about Britain's contribution to the animation landscape, because Lord f***ing knows there isn't a lot else to be prideful about being British at the moment. <laughs> but we make damn good cartoons. Oh, yes. So, yes, uh, that'll be uh, on BBC4, 2nd of December. I believe it's 9pm. Tune in, and if you miss it, I'm sure it's going to be on iPlayer. And if you keep your eyeballs skinned, you might see some exciting cameos from... Uh, the greats of the UK animation blogosphere. Aware in it as well. Unless they cut us out of it. <laughs> There's a lot of people to get into that documentary. It's going to be an interesting one. Get it circled in the Radio Times. I have to say, I've um, I've talked to a couple of people who saw it in London. And I talked to Jez, who, um, Jez from the BFI, who I would imagine would be its harshest critic. And he seemed pretty positive about it. I mean, I don't say, like... He's not known as being a harsh critic. He's just, you know, British animation is, I think, kind of his life. So yep. certainly if there was anything amiss or awry, he would cotton on to it. But he seemed to dig it, so that's cool. And Aaron's seen it. Uh, he seemed pretty excited about it. So, yeah, I, uh, I look forward to it, mm. as should all of you. <laughs> just subtly, you know, planting the seeds. I think those <laughs> seeds are well and truly planted. Meanwhile... Google Spotlight Stories is up to their usual tricks. They mm. just launched another one of their immersive uh, 360 films. What I find kind of interesting about what they do is when, you know, they really take the concept of a VR film in a new direction. And this one, it's kind of interesting. They've done something not so much in this sort of like new, let's redefine filmmaking direction, but more in a kind of classical filmmaking direction. This is a film that completely holds together as a short film with a narrative and with, you know, a really good sense of character and story arc and everything like that, that you could also enjoy in this immersive context. But you could enjoy it very happily watching it projected onto a screen. That isn't to say that the other films have been failures when you watch them outside of a VR context. No. But you do kind of... There is a certain element of, I guess, sacrifice that the VR-ness of, say, Rain or Shine rewards, I think, immersive viewers more than the 2D version that I don't think has been shown super often. But, you know, for, like, presentations and stuff, I know they did do a 2D version. Mm -hmm. Recently, Nexus did a tribute to Georges Méliès by uh, Francois-Xavier Gobi, and that was tremendous. I think it won at Manchester last week. It certainly did. Called uh, Back to the Moon? Mm -hmm. That was really nice. I got to um, 
they were kind of putting the finishing touches on it the last time I was up at Nexus, and I got to have a little preview of that one. Um, I mean, that one came together really lovely in a really lovely way. But it's, it, it was, was a Google, it was a Google uh, Doodle, wasn't it? So it was only supposed yeah. to be a quick, short, sharp little uh, piece of uh, innovative fun, and they decided to do it in VR. Was it the first VR Google Doodle? Because you know, Google Doodles are always, you know, it used to be just a well, let's just do Google slightly differently, and now it's it's gone. So there's games and there's coding and there's puzzles and there's videos, and they went straight for VR with this uh, to celebrate the. Well, it would have been an anniversary of uh, of Melies or something. And there are all sorts of other applications, you know, down the line that I'm sure they're going to be exploring and stuff. So this was almost not. Refreshing isn't the word because it's not, you know, a series that needs refreshment. I've enjoyed pretty much everything that they've been putting out. I was, I found the coherence of the narrative a little bit of a surprise because usually they do things that are more kind of music driven rather than narration and dialogue driven. And this is a proper, like, you know, little story. Well, it's it's fair to say, isn't it? You look at something like uh, Piggy that was released or, or Back to the Moon. It is, it's pantomime because yeah. you, you don't want to be looking north when all the action's happening south and you can hear people talking south. Yeah. So you, you're constantly spinning round and trying to maintain a focus. But the thing about VR is you, you're interested about everything that's around you. Whereas this one, it kind of captures you within that narrative, the, the verbal narrative that's going on. Yeah. But it's still simple. It's still two characters, two you know characters with a conflict. It's about tradition. It's about... Uh, the future, it's about being stubborn, it's about you know, opening up and letting people in and all that kind of stuff it's got danger and excitement and boats <laughs> it's, yep. it's it's a great film Man and his breast old boat mm. the one issue I have these days with anything that has Ian McShane in it, and I had the same problem with American Gods, is all I'm just thinking is Deadwood movie, Deadwood movie Deadwood movie, <laughs> Deadwood movie, there's going to be a Deadwood movie <laughs> <laughs> he was great in it, of course. I mean, he has such a um, characterful, throaty old man voice, you know. It's about a guy, I guess, who's lonesome and he's basically gone out to sea to kind of let nature take its course, but he doesn't have enough supplies to ever make his way back to shore. So he's just going to kind of, like, float out forever. But it's not that maudlin, really. It's not like trying to laboriously tug at your heartstrings. He's just one of these old seafaring curmudgeons. And then his plans are kind of scuppered or interrupted when a steamboat comes by, a young lady falls off the side of it, and he has to rescue her. And uh, so now he has company, but he still has no supplies, and so it's where they go from there. Mm. And will having company of this kind bring him out of his funk? Uh, And it plays out from there. And it's by... uh, John Cars, who I believe has been on this very podcast in the past. Yes, indeed. I think that was one of the earlier ones. It was probably it was when Paper Man came out, so that would have been, I think, when the podcast started, right? Yeah, it was about 400 years ago. Yeah, give or take. Yeah. So, always nice to bring guests back on. I believe you met him in much the same kind of capacity as he did back then at an Annecy uh, presentation. Yes. Yeah, it was... Uh, Annecy have, have really taken on board uh, VR. Uh, this year, coming up, 2019, is going to be the first year that they actually hold a VR competition, um, which is uh, which is going to be interesting, you know. The, they've, they've always had a strong selection of, of VR films, 
last year they did show Age of Sail as a preview. The year before they showed um, uh, what was uh, Jorge Gutierrez's um, uh, VR uh, film called Son of Jaguar. Yeah. Uh, they showed that, but they showed them both when they were in a kind of um, uh, incomplete state. And, you know, so it's interesting. You go along as a journalist and you have, you know, Jorge Gutierrez apologizing <laughs> for his film because it's not completed yet. And then you have John Carr's apologizing for his film because it's not completed yet. But it's so, they were so great. You know, the, from what we saw, we only saw like the first couple of minutes of the film and you're instantly hooked by the characters you're instantly hooked by you know there's no gimmick you know it's it's the the stage is owned you know vr the the location where you are it's not about you know watching the film but then no oh, guess what's happening behind there's somebody picking their nose and you you might have missed it so you have to watch it again you know it's not about that anymore it's about the film and it's yeah. about the uh, the command of of the performance and staging and all that kind of stuff, and it's done incredibly well. And it's out in full now, mm. so pop on those uh, goggles, be they of the cardboard or um, fancy schmancy variety. Give it a look, see. And you probably see it using your phone as well. Just use, you'd have to use the goggles. Yeah, because you can do the yeah moving it around the room kind of Ma- thing. Magic window. Mm-hmm. Cool. Let's uh, let's hear from John Carr, shall we? You know, I tried to make him a very real character that has a history, and he's like kind of a broken man, and let the actors kind of fill in the blanks. Mm. Um, but yeah, I did grow up sailing, so okay. I know a little, little. I know about like the mechanics of what the boat has to do and why that propels the story. So I think there's some there's some good detail there. I think there's a there's a line straight away which is we still have the right of way and I thought well is that is that something that's, that that only somebody who knows about sailing understands is that is that a maritime thing? Um, I don't know, but I think that there is. I, I, I felt like sailboat you know sailboats still have the right of way now in the 21st century. Um, that boats that are under power have to like have to you know pass around them if mm. they're under sail and. Um, I don't know. I feel like when you're watching The Wire or something, you're like thrown into a world where you don't quite understand what they're all saying or talking about. But that's part of what makes the experience immersive of like these characters have, you know, their own world and their own understanding of the world. And I think it's, it's it doesn't matter that one has the right of way yeah. in terms of the story that much. It's just... It's a. It's part of the the metaphor for the entire. This guy's entire life is that, you know, he's been displaced by these giant ocean liners, and mm-hmm. he's angry about it. Mm. <laughs> and that's how he expresses it. <laughs> yeah, it's great to see you uh, moving to VR. Um, um, it must be a, a, a tough gig to follow uh, your own successes in terms of um, you've completed Paperman, uh, you won the Academy Award. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find something which is a challenge for you after uh, achieving something like that? Uh, well, I think maybe the the expectation is that if you get you do a short that's very successful like that, 
and then if, especially if you got the Academy Award that you're going to get representation you're going to move out into the world of features and develop something which is exactly what happened um, but then the whole world of that entire world kind of collapsed around me um, the project the entire system that I was working within the studio the studio itself kind of imploded and um, so I felt kind of um, perplexed by <laughs> that, that, that being like a viable pathway suddenly like I had a lot of new information that I was trying to figure out like is this really the direction I want to go mm. and at the same time there was a lift project that appeared um, and it, I was given so much creative freedom to do and, and in terms of writing it myself and finding my own production company with Chromosphere and just letting them go to this awesome place with design and specifying the research trips and being able to pick my own composer and all these all these things that honestly in a, in a feature environment I would never have had the freedom to do those things mm -hmm. I'd have to do I'd have the freedom to do some of those things but the, the experience of having that kind of freedom to create in that way and also the fact that the project got finished and went out into the world in kind of a short time I s the pros and cons of that made doing shorts a lot easier um, in my mind and then so I, in that case I've been I've been kind of steering myself away from the classic like two hour you know talking animal <laughs> type um, you know animated feature film mm-hmm is is that kind of a uh, do you find yourself given given your your, your vast experience pre um, Paperman working uh, at Pixar and Disney on on the features uh, do you find yourself more as a as a short filmmaker now is that is that your uh, uh, passion it's it's no easier now <laughs> than it was then I mean if the story pathway for Age of Sail was just as tortured as any. Mm. And the story pathway for June was super difficult too, um, which I think is the the commonality there is almost like comforting because now I know how hard I'm going to have to work in any venue to get the story to work right. Yeah. And, um, and if it comes, if it came too easy, I think I would be suspicious <laughs> um, that maybe it wasn't any good. Um, <laughs> but I. Um, I guess your question is more about like having worked in features. You know, what, what is that? How does that relate to working in shorts now? And do I feel like I'm a shorts director? Was that what yeah, you're kind of asking? Yeah. I think. Well, I think all of that. That's like ab about the craftsmanship of filmmaking and storytelling mm. that is super valuable that you can apply to any size project. But um, there's. There's a lot of, um, I, I, I like the short format. I like to jam like two hours worth of content into like a short film running length, mm -hmm. um, if possible, so that the characters feel rich and, and really complete. Like you're just getting a little keyhole vi view of like a much bigger universe that those people are part of, yeah. those characters are part of. So, so moving from uh, well, it, it, it is a it is a short, but it's a completely different experience VR to uh, uh, or, or 360 filmmaking. 
uh, working with um, Spotlight on Age of Sail. Mm-hmm. How did that come about and, and how have you found that as a challenge in terms of uh, creating... Um, We've only seen a minute of the film, or a minute or so of the film, so far. But uh, it's on a, it's set on a boat, so mm-hmm. I imagine seasickness was something that was oh, yeah, <laughs> was right, mentioned. Right away. And, I mean, yeah, I well, for for starters, I, you know, I I was I was invited to pitch. I wasn't an, it wasn't an invitation to do it. It was mm. like, well, what have you got? So you just can't stroll in and just start working, <laughs> yeah. which. I also think that I, I think also that's great because you want to be pushed um, to really bring something that's worthy of the of the group, and I think they're doing great work. So mm-hmm. I pitched one idea, which I don't think they were interested in, and then I pitched this, which was kind of a repurposed idea that I'd had knocking around in my head for like ten years about a washed-up guy with a boat that has to do extraordinary things. To, to get someone to safety, um, and then it kind of went through all of this different kinds of pitches where the girl was the main character, and then, then the guy was the main character, and I switched back and forth. But um, I think, at, under all that, I I knew that if you were on a boat, that was this is when you're when you're on a sailboat under sail, there is a feeling that is extremely difficult to capture cinematically with traditional cinema techniques. Hmm. Um, and the, the, the kind of bland, everybody who knows it's true analogy is like when you go to the Grand Canyon and you look around, there's an immersiveness, there's an expanse to that space that surrounds you completely, that when you take a picture of it, you look at the picture later and you're like, mm, okay, yep, I guess you were there. But there's nothing there's there's nothing from that expansiveness that makes it into that picture mm. and um, I've, I've always felt like being on a sailboat especially under sail can be a, this really exhilarating surrounding experience that s- traditional filmmaking just can't grab onto mm. and um, and it's true it, it's I think I was right yeah <laughs> because when you're at, when we recreated that I think once we figured out those details, which are extremely important details, which have all to do with seasickness, um, once we kind of, that was the first like six weeks of the project right there was, are we going to make people sick? And I was very, very worried about it. Because if anybody got sick, or even a small percentage of the audience got sick, then there was no point in continuing. And um, we had a lot of budget and personnel and schedule on the heels of that initial testing so I'm like that train's gonna just <laughs> grind to a halt if if people start barfing you know and um, and it turns out that the horizon line like locking that horizon line is the thing that fixes it right so the boat can roll you know torturously like heave underneath you but as long as you can see that horizon and sky, and you can lock onto that hemisphere above you, um, then you're going to be okay. Um, which is almost a one-for-one equivalent for what it's like to be on a real boat. If you go below cabin, de- if you go below deck, you're basically screwed. Hmm. You're going to get sick. Uh, if you keep your eyes off the horizon and you keep looking down, 
the what your eye sees is not is out of out of whack with what your body is feeling. Yeah. And um, so once we got that working, then I was super happy. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, now we can build this immersive world, and let's let's see how immersive we can make it, and how do we do that in a way that um, connects to the the you know you you have to use low poly. It's like going back to Doom era 1996, like polygon count kind of numbers, uh-huh. um, which is as- astonishing to me that we have to do that. But it's also astonishing that all that stuff r- runs in real time now, even on a phone. So that was that was part of the decision the, the decision making to go for like a kind of a low poly look, but a low poly look that looks like a moving illustration. So yes. We were kind of hunting around for artists that had like a dovetail fit with that kind of restriction. Um, and Kevin's Chromosphere is really super at that, um, at making things that are simple and have to be reduced down to a, a design simplicity, but making them look complete and rich at the same time. And um, there's one painter, Bernie Fuchs, that um, he was a. You know, he's like comes from that Saturday Evening Post era, you know, um, novel illustration type 1950s and 60s illustrator. But his paintings are like very simple blocks of color, but they have a lot of richness and variation within them, just like, like almost like scrub sponge effects or something. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of effects, those kinds of textures really help bring the richness back into this very very simple world Mm -hmm. and um, he was kind of our like jumping off point design wise is each uh, each color and shape and it's it has to be perfectly placed and it is it's it's a it's a very fine design uh, finely designed film what can you tell us about the entire film? Because all, all I've seen is, is a preview here at, here at Annecy. Um, and we've, we, we see a, a grizzled old man uh, rescue uh, a young lady, which I can presume is at the, uh, the sort of early, uh, early 20th century. Yeah, uh, it's like 1900. Yeah. Yeah. I was just watching Sense and Sensibility on the plane, and I'm like, any one of those sisters <laughs> could be this girl. <laughs> I mean, I'm, but they're not even... They're not even like they're well read, but they're not even like that high class. In fact, they're the girls in that story. The whole point is that they're not as like well born as as um, as they wish they were. So mm. They're all trying to get married and stuff. But Lara, that character, I think is like you know she's had ballet lessons and she's very well read and she's smart and but in that at the same time. And, and at one at one point, you kind of, on one hand, you kind of understand that she's like an upper class Victorian girl that's well read. But on the other hand, you know nothing about her. You don't even know really why she fell off the ship, or where she was going, or where she's from, or where her parents are, or if anyone's worrying about her. And um, that's kind of on purpose uh, because her the point point of that character in the story is that she's kind of the agent of change that pushes on this other character to get him to to go back to the world and um, there's a lot of parallels like It's a Wonderful Life when Clarence 
falls into the river, there's like no warning. He just like falls from the heavens and <laughs> George has to go and save him. And then everyone's kind of confused by his arrival, but um, he's the guy pushing on George to, to get him to like figure out what what is what is true and what's valuable and um, to basically turn and change that character um, or create an environment where that character has to change. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the so the story and you know it owes a lot to those kinds of those kinds of narratives um, like Logan or um, um, like Children of Men Um, there's a guy in those 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 stories are about a guy who is disconnected from the world and he believes that that's the best place for him is to just be apart from everyone and everything yeah and there's always something in that story that brings him back into the world so that eventually not only is he connected to the humanity but he's he's giving everything he's got he sacrifices everything in order to save this one person one other girl or one other person um, and I love that I love that stuff I yeah. love those stories I, I, I think even like Fagin from uh, Oliver Twist he's a bad guy Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's he's not nearly as bad as uh, the other dude. What's his name? Bill Sykes. Yeah. Yeah. That guy's just just pure evil, awful. But yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's also kind of like a father, and he's he becomes a better guy because of Oliver's presence. And um, I'd say Will Hawk uh, is it Will Hawkins? And um, in in Treasure Island. Uh. I, I, I know it's Hawkins I'm not quite sure what the first name is I think it's Jim Hawkins Jim yeah. Hawkins yeah Jim Hawkins Will was his brother yeah, yeah. Um, Jim Hawkins and then there's um, what's his name Captain Long John Silver yeah Long John Silver is a very similar uh, arrangement where you know Long John Silver is just he's just out for himself hmm. a selfish pretty bad guy but because of the this kid nearby he's changing him into a better version of the guy he was before. He gets, he makes him a little bit better. And the kid grows and learns and the old man learns and grows and true grit. Like, there's a lot of those, that's like a template story that I think is just phenomenal. Mm. And, um, and this is that story. Age of Sales is the same, same thing. Fantastic. Um, all, all uh, the, the kind of isolation of the sea and, and, and things, all the isolation of, say, the, the wilderness in True Grit or all these kind of uh, yeah. arenas uh, 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 seem to lend themselves perfectly to these stories. Yeah, just describing it to you now, I'm like, man, i got to get my interview game on because it took me like 14 paragraphs to explain <laughs> that idea. <laughs> Oh, we've got but, some um, detail out here, John. This is good. This is no, good. Well, well, a lot of this stuff was—it's uh, like it's pent up. Um, it's like raw idea mm. material that was in the early pitches, and um, it was stuff I would just buzz through some slides really quickly, like like Kolya. I don't know if you remember that movie. Which one, sorry? Kolya. No. It's about this old guy who gets this toddler dropped off on his front doorstep, and he's like what the hell do I do with this? And uh, he's kind of a playboy and he's a musician and he 
he um, his life is completely changed by this kid. He becomes a completely different person because and it's a really strong Czechoslovakian film. Hmm. Um, that's a great model for this stuff. But I, I had all of these images in this pres- in these early presentations. But that's different from sitting with someone with a microphone and having to say it out loud in a succinct way yeah. and make those analogies and all those bridge bridge all those gaps. So. Yeah. Is this I'm is this interview the equivalent? Right? Yeah. Is this interview the equivalent of uh, you know I'm I'm asking all the questions and you're the grizzled outsider who has to admit to things. You're the agent yeah. of change. Yeah, <laughs> I have to finally become a new version of myself that does a half decent interview. Um. Fantastic. Well, um, in, in terms of in terms of films, um, I suppose they're the little obsessions, uh, and you have to be interested in in. Uh, in the kernel of the idea to get it done, and you you expressed an interest for sailing that yeah. you've, you've done yourself, and um, I suppose there's elements to to uh, your other films which you apply to them. I mean, are there any other kind of interests or obsessions that you're getting into uh, after Age of Sail? Um, well, I think Paperman and Age of Sail. There's this. There's something about the space between those buildings in Paperman, and there's a there's a there's something almost like electrifying about throwing an object out into that space that's different than if there wasn't the building on the other side. If it was just empty space, hmm. it's not interesting. But there's something about spatially that I, the way that's set up is very interesting to me. And then in Age of Sail, there's, there's the space of being isolated on this like infinite plane but then there's also the juxtaposition of like having a target out there on the horizon and that that the kind of quintessential there's a spot on the horizon and that's the only spot out there that's the only hope and you're you're chasing after that spot Mm. Um, there's something really captivating about that idea like in a fundamental way to me like you're gonna make the audience focus even though you're making something in 360 you're making them focus on almost a single pixel the way David Lean makes you focus on that that one piece of halide film grain of this guy approaching in you know Lawrence of Arabia um, so I love that you know I guess it's the commonality between the two is like an obsession of the way you can create interesting spatial relationships mm-hmm. um, but how, you have to throw away all this stuff to do it in VR. Like you can't. You can't compose. You have to compose like you're creating theater in the round. You have to compose like you and I are sitting here, and and someone talks behind me, and that that you know, like you have to compose by with sound and by having your characters react. In, the characters reacting to the space is the way you create the audiences engagement to the space I guess I was wondering how you even begin storyboarding something so even even though like I say we've only seen a minute of the film there's a moment where we're concentrating on uh, the ship goes past the steamer goes past um, the the, the girl falls out and and then there's a conversation between the sailor and the the girl but by the time uh, they mention the ship again the ship has has long since passed and I turn around to watch the ship go Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, that's timed beautifully. That's not that. So it all has to be uh, yeah, and composed in such a way. Yeah, it is very like deftly handled. 
and and sweated over which i'm curious did you did you watch the ship go away or were you engaged I was like with this. the conversation i was looking left to right and i was engaged in the conversation because i knew it was in i knew it was important but i was like i was more looking at the being obviously as i am an, an enormous nerd the the <laughs> uh, the technicalities of it to see yeah. how that would how that well, would work because th- when the ship goes by it's right at the edge of being too fast and mm. which i think is it's good because you want to feel like this is like a spaceship that's from another it's from the future yeah this thing is just out pacing him this magnificent wall of metal is just like blowing him away yeah he's just dead in the water with one sail up not even moving hardly and this thing just almost silently just whizzes by and then if you if you focus on them and then you look back like as you said you look back and man that thing just that just got the hell out of here (laughs) it's so far away already but if you were focusing only on the ship, you'll notice as soon as the conversation happens, the ship kind of goes like, <laughs> <laughs> it like goes into like hyperdrive, <laughs> like and it's just on the edge of being comical. But it was the, our way of getting it. It had to be a pl- it had to be out far enough that both characters would be like, yeah. We're screwed. <laughs> I, I, I think, it, I think it worked because I was looking. Be, yeah. You can't yell at it anymore <laughs> like they're so far away. But it can't go away too far because then it, that makes it into some kind of like like it's a spaceship that can move too fast. Mm. But so, it, it was timed well and that's the, that's, yeah, I suppose and, that's and the, I one that, of the challenges um, maybe. Yeah, th- that scene in particular is more, is a trickier because I don't know if people are watching him or they're watching the boat when she falls off. Um, but I that's it's one of those things well if I have her scream then his reaction is going to motivate your reaction of like what's I heard that too and there he's responding and he looks after her so that's like a a trick that I try to use a couple times um, is using sound and have characters like point and say there it is (laughs) you know to get the audience to turn because I really resent having to turn around in VR or I, f- I really resent having to be forced to turn I want to I want people to turn because they're they can't resist you know mm-hmm. but I don't like the idea of like I don't know I've, I feel like I've been, I've been in a couple of VR experiences where I'm like okay I guess I gotta look around behind me but if I made it enthralling enough then you wouldn't have that sentiment at all mm. you'd just be like what, what's going on around me mm. and I think that being in the open ocean kind of gives you that natural tendency to want to look around yeah it's kind of interesting to just look around the boat uh, well absolutely know? yeah but the, you know the characters are that captivating enough to to hold the attention obviously uh, yeah, as I'm well good. I hope so so what's next for, for John Cars uh well, we have to finish this. Yeah. Um, I do like working in this, like, smaller format stuff. Like, I think, I, you know, I have a couple of other irons in the fire. Everybody has to have a couple things that they're working on or trying to get. But um, it'd be interesting to see what the response to this is in the, in the VR version and in the 2D version. Hmm. and see where that takes me but um, I'm kind of getting to the point where um, maybe developing my own content is maybe the best place to go now 
Um, so I've been focusing more on that recently, um, on the heels of this. Right. I mean, this is my own content. Yeah. And, th and th this is such a great environment because they're like, yeah, this is your story, your vision, and your total responsibility in a good and a bad way. Like, you're, you have to make it not suck. <laughs> you can't, you have, there's no one else to blame but yourself. And, um, and I, I like having that kind of ultimately, it's not ultimate power, it's just ultimate, like, having to answer to yourself and your audience and, and everyone around you. Like, are you giving something that's, are you making something that's good enough? And I think the projects that I'm pursuing after this are all very much in that category of, like, I have to just keep working and working until they're good enough even just to pitch. And... And then we'll go on from there. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, John Cars, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today and best of luck with Age of Sale. We're looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. John Cars there, talking with Steve back in the summer in anticipation of his Google Spotlight Stories entry, Age of Sale, which is now available to watch and experience online. As of this month, head on over to ATAP google.com to check it out along with other films in their series or check out the google spotlight stories youtube channel and you can find john cars on twitter at john underscore cars that's cars spelled k-a-h-r-s before we go just it might be worth talking a little bit about the the upcoming 2018 european animation awards or the emile awards uh, as as they're known as it's the second annual emile awards coming up on December the 8th, and a whole heap of nominations have been revealed. We're not going to read them all out. They're all on the website. But uh, tickets are now available for the awards, which take place in Lille in France. So uh, if you're interested in, in going down to the uh, Emile Awards or voting, you can join. You can become a member of the Emiles, uh, watch all the films online, uh, and cast a little vote and support some European animation. So that's there as well. Fantastic stuff. But if you happen to be here in the old U of K on the 8th, however, another fun animation evening can be had in London. My new film Sunscapades will be screening, among many other fantastic films, as part of the London International Animation Festival's Late Night Bazaar program. That'll be at 9pm at the Horse Hospital in Bloomsbury. You can grab tickets at liaf.org.uk where you can also see the festival's full lineup. It goes from this Friday, November 30th, through to December 9th, and as ever, it's chock-full of amazing presentations and films. You'll absolutely want to check it out if you're a London dweller, or London-adjacent. But, Ben, I literally hear you screaming in my face at all hours of the night. I live in Brazil! What good is all this talk of London to me? Well, cut the shit for one f***ing second, because I have good news. The Crash International Fantastic Film Festival is returning to the city of Goiânia at its Cine Cultura for the 10th edition. That'll be from December 6th through to the 12th. And what luck! Sunscapades is among the short film lineup there too. When exactly it'll play, I'm not sure yet, but check out the website mostratrash.com for specific news as it comes. Also worth plugging is that Bertram Fiddle 2, a bleaker predicament by our pals from Rumpus Animation, has recently been released for the Nintendo Switch. I don't get a cut of the profits or anything, but I did bless it 
with a bunch of character voices, each more mediocre than the last. I've been playing it through the last few days, and it's oodles of point-and-click retro indie gaming fun, so go get it. And don't forget, the Secrets of British Animation BBC4 documentary will be broadcast this Sunday, December 2nd at 9pm. Should be enlightening. Tune in! And of course, continue to absorb our own animation coverage at squiggly.co.uk or via our social media outlets Squiggly Magazine on Facebook, at Squiggly Animation on Instagram, and at Squiggly on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. And oh no, the podcast is about to end. Love you, bye! (laughs) 